Father, we're so thankful for you gathering us here this morning. We know that you're, we're here by grace, um, that you've ordained this time, in fact, this very sermon to be preached by this sinner, to be heard by my brothers and sisters. And so I ask that you would take this time and glorify it, that you would, by your Spirit, Lord, make us people who hear and do. Uh, we do not want to be those who hear your word preached, read the Bible, attend the Bible study, and not live in accordance with it. Uh, we're so thankful, Lord, for the teaching on this great mission to the Gentiles. Many of us are products of that mission. We have been saved by grace through faith, not through the bloodline of Abraham, but through the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning, uh, that you would guide our thoughts, um, that you would captivate our hearts, Lord, that we would see Christ high upon the throne, exalted, and that we would want to worship him. Father, I pray as well that you would show us as Christians that we are to be eager to obey you, not in an act of religion and not out of fear of punishment, but because of the love that has captivated our hearts in Christ. And in that love, Father, I pray that we would be a most obedient people, that we would want to hear your word, understand it, and then actually do it, Father. Forgive us for our lack of obedience this morning as a people and change our hearts so that we might be faithful in all that we do. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, saints, if you're not in Acts 10, go there. Hope you're there already. Um, I want you, it's a, it's a longer uh, section today. And so I, I do want your eyes to follow along, so I'll reference the verse, and I want you to look at it. There's something very good about seeing uh, God's Word as it's being read and spoken to. Uh, the title of the sermon is Gospel Obedience, and that's important in that we are called to obey in the context of the gospel. Um, in the last week, if you were here, we started the longest single narrative in the book of Acts, and it's the longest narrative because it's so important. Uh, Dr. Luke takes considerable length to describe the mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ going out to the Gentiles, out to the Gentile world, and God doing what he had promised to do all the way back with Abraham, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in him was going to go beyond the descendants of Abraham, the bloodline descendants, beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. With that, especially in the early church, we started looking at two major problems that the church found themselves dealing with, the Jews in particular. Question number one was, did you have to become a Jew? If you were a Gentile, did you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Did you have to go through the uh, proselyte process? And the second question they had was, can Jews and Gentiles, can, can they eat together? Can they have table fellowship together? Can they gather like this in the same building and worship the same God without having some type of contamination process. And so we started part one. It's a three-part mini, I hate saying mini-series, but it's a three-part mini-narrative in the context of Acts 10 and 11. Part one we looked at last week, and if you were here, God set the stage for this incredible encounter we're going to look at today. He gave a vision to Peter, and he gave a vision to Cornelius. Part two, today we get to look at God bringing the salvation, bringing the gospel to Cornelius' house through Peter and people being saved and the Holy Spirit being poured out. It's a magnificent event. And then next week, we'll look at Peter. He's going to travel back to Jerusalem to the church, and he's going to explain to the council, um, to the church in Jerusalem, what God had done. And he's going to set and actually cast the vision 
for the, the mission to the Gentiles. So just so much meat here for us to look at. Now, if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember Peter's in Joppa. He had, he had uh, resuscitated Tabitha, brought her back from the dead. Many came to a saving grace, and so he's doing ministry work there. He's, he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. While at the exact same time, 30 miles north in Caesarea, God sends an angel to speak to Cornelius. And he tells Cornelius, send some men to Joppa and bring Peter to your house, to your Gentile house in Caesarea. Now, if you remember, we learned that Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man. Um, and, and it says that God actually remembered his prayers and his almsgiving. And so he comes to Cornelius and he says, go get Peter. Cornelius has no idea why. He doesn't know why Peter should come. He doesn't know the message is going to be received. Uh, but he's faithful to obey. He says, all right, Lord, I will do that. And so he sends his servants. And upon the servants' arrival in Joppa, if you remember, Peter's up on Simon the Tanner's roof, and he's hungry, and he's praying, and then he has the vision of the sheet with all the animals clean and unclean, and he's commanded by God to do what? Kill Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, no way, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to start now. And so the, the sheet is taken away, the animals are gone. Peter's saying, what was that about? Trying to figure it out. And in the midst of his contemplation, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, Peter, there are servants here from Cornelius. Go with them now. Do not delay. And Peter obeys. And from the beginning of this narrative, going all the way back to verse 1, as we'll see all the way through chapter 11, verse 18, God is speaking and his people are obeying. God speaks and his people obey. Obeying God. What a novel thought, Christian. What a novel thought that we ought to obey the creator of all that is seen and unseen. The very one who has given you life and breath this very day calls you to obey him. It shouldn't be all that novel. It shouldn't be. But the history of man going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 has been filled with rebellion and disobedience. So much so that we think that to be normal so that when someone in Christ simply obeys God, we think it's strange, maybe even wrong. God says that all life is sacred, including the unborn, and we say that is a violation of what? A mother's right to choose. God says that he created man in his own image, male and female, and we say gender is self-determined. God says man is fallen and needs to be saved. We say man is good and we must be tolerant. At every single turn... What God commands, sinful man turns upside down and rebels against God. That ought not be the case for the Christian. We, are, we live in a fallen world, but we ought not to approach God and our life as the world does. We ought to want to obey God. And in our passage today, we are going to see how God begins the Gentile mission by taking the gospel to Cornelius' house and in that, he saves multitudes, and he will save multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation out of what? Out of a life of disobedience, and out of a life of rebellion, and into a loving obedience in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I'd like us to consider three things. One, eager to obey, obey. number two, sent to obey, and number three, empowered to obey. The Christian ought to be eager to obey because God sent Christ the Son to obey so that we might be empowered to obey. If there's a theme, I'm going to give it to you. Psalm 128 verse 1 would be the theme for the sermon. Happy are those who obey the Lord who live by His commands. Happy are those 
who obey the Lord and live by his commands. So if, you have, if you're experiencing a lack of joy and a lack of happiness in your life, one of the first things you should do is say, how am I disobeying the Lord? How am I not living in accordance with God's will? Because that will bring much displeasure in your life. Point number one, eagerness to obey. Look at the latter part of verse 23 again. The next day he, Peter, rose and went away with them, all the messengers sent from Cornelius' house. And some of the brothers from Joppa, these would be Jewish Christians who were with Peter, who went from Jerusalem to Joppa with Peter. They went to accompany Peter to Cornelius' house. Um, and, and no doubt they were there to testify on what God was going to do through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I, I love this part. It's not a major, well it is kind of. He gets a message from God that, by the way, the apostle Peter, a pillar in the church, is going to come. An angel told him this. So he goes to his family and his friends. Most likely God fears also. He says, you got to come and see what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's got to be fantastic because God made the appointment. And if God made the appointment, then Cornelius was right to expect that it was going to be good. And he wanted his friends and family to all be a part of it. Verse 20. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, and he worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Now, let's be very careful. Cornelius is not worshipping Peter. It was common practice in the culture to, to prostrate oneself as an act of honor. Um, so he's not worshipping Peter. That's a bad interpretation of this. But it's more reverence than Peter likes. And, and so Peter lovingly says, Stand up, I'm just a man. I'm just a man like you. A loving and gentle rebuke. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, as Peter talked with Cornelius, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now, uh, some of the commentators said that Peter was probably caught off guard. He thought he was going to go to see Cornelius and maybe a few of the servants in the house, and this house is packed with family and friends and servants to hear Peter speak. Peter doesn't even know what he's going to say, by the way. There was no preparation for this sermon. Verse 28, And he, Peter, said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of of another nation. That's a nice way to enter the room, isn't it? You know, I'm not supposed to be here. Now, given the proximity of Caesarea to Jerusalem and likely the way that the Jews in Caesarea lived in relationship to the Gentiles, Peter could say, rightly, you yourselves know, I'm a Jew. This is a Gentile house. You're all Gentiles. But coming into this home and engaging with you is making me unclean. Now, it's important to note that there's nowhere in God's word, there's no law that says that a Gentile associating with a Jew makes the Jew unclean. But by doing so, they put themselves in a position to be made unclean. In other words, when they enter their home, a home is unclean, they become unclean. When they eat their food, that it wasn't being prepared properly, they become unclean. When they use their utensils, when the Jew uses the utensil of a Gentile that's not properly cleansed, he becomes unclean. And so all of the interaction between a Jew and a Gentile would make the Jew unclean, requiring the Jew to go through uh, a, a ritual purification in order to worship God again. Look at the latter part of verse 28. But, Peter says... But God has shown me, he showed Peter in the vision of the sheet and the animals, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That was the vision, right? That's what we heard God say, what God has made clean, do not call 
unclean. So three days prior to this, before the vision, Peter never, ever would have entered the house of Cornelius. And he wouldn't have been communing with these Gentiles. But now, finally, remember he was pondering on the roof when the Holy Spirit said, you got to go with Cornelius. And he's wondering, what does this vision mean? Finally, he's starting to get it. The picture is coming clear that God, listen, God is the creator of all things. And as the creator of all things, he made all things in the beginning, what? Clean. You remember Genesis account, end of the sixth day, he looks upon the creation and says what? It is good. It is good. It is without blemish. It is without sin. No need for separation. No need for cleansing because you've come into contact with someone that you ought not. The law wasn't even in place then. And so just as God revealed to Peter in the vision that all the animals are clean because what? God made them. And therefore, if God made it, it is inherently clean. So too, human beings, listen, those made in the image of God are to be considered clean creatures. Not sinless creatures, but clean creatures in terms of how we relate and how we commune and how we associate one to another. It ought not to be a race issue or a gender issue. God commanded Peter to go to Cornelius' house in his home and he's going to actually eat with him because all the old purity laws that we looked at last week were fulfilled in Christ. They no longer applied. Peter would not become unclean by going into Cornelius' house. He would not become unclean by sitting at their table and eating their food. He wouldn't have to go through the purification rituals to enter back into the temple to worship God. Why? Because Jesus, remember, tore down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. He tore it down upon the cross, and in so doing, he grants all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation access to God. Everyone. Not by keeping the law, but by grace through faith in the one who kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Christ says, come on in, nations. I have granted you access through my broken body and my spilled blood. Now at this point, Peter begins to understand the ontological point that God is making, that human beings are inherently sacred, right? That we're made in the image of God. Every human being has worth and value because we are image bearers, and therefore every human being is to be treated with dignity and honor and respect. But what Peter does not realize yet is what God intends to do with Cornelius and all those that had packed themselves into that house. He didn't realize. He gets the general understanding that all human beings are clean because we're creating the image of God and we have to treat each other with honor and dignity. But what God's going to do in moments through the gospel of grace and the Holy Spirit, he's going to make them spiritually clean too. And so that Cornelius and all those in the house, all these Gentiles that Peter once thought would make him unclean will become brothers and sisters in Christ. Blood bought into the family of God. Verse 29, so Peter says, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. Now that's an interesting statement. God tells, the angel tells Cornelius to go get Peter he doesn't know why. Peter's told to go to Cornelius, and he doesn't even know why. He says, why am I here? Why have you sent for me? So Peter doesn't even know yet that he's going to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, and people are going to be saved. But what does he not do? He doesn't object. He obeys. Why does he obey? He's got a new heart. 
He's got a new heart that wants to obey God. And God has spoken clearly to him. And by the way, it's God. And so here's good counsel. When God speaks, listen and do. It's God. Verse 30. Cornelius said, four days ago, he's going to tell, tell Peter the story. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Verse 32, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And so Cornelius, Cornelius tells the story, but this is really interesting. This is the third iteration in this chapter that Luke tells us. And you say, well, why would he do that? Why does he? I've heard this now third time. I know the story. It is a literary technique that authors in the scriptures would use to say, hey, this is a really, really, really important point in the Bible. What's happening here is significant. So what's so significant about it? This is the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. This is it. I mean, this, again, this is our family history. Verse 33, Cornelius says, so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. So he's, he's so thankful that Peter actually listened, right? Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Every single thing leading up all the, the visions, the, the commands given, the obedience is leading up to this divinely appointed meeting between the Apostle Peter and the Gentile Cornelius. Everything up to this point in time. Peter is going to share the gospel and the uncircumcised Gentiles are going to be saved. No longer those separated from Christ, Ephesians 2.12 no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, no longer strangers to the covenants, no longer those without hope or without God in the world, no longer, because God is going to turn everything upside down and bring the same saving grace that he has for the Jews to the Gentiles, and this is the beginning of the Great Commission, and this is the beginning of why you are here. You're here because God said, my gospel through my son will go to the nations. It'll go to the nations. Now, the reason I, I titled this first point, Eager to Obey, is because God does all the saving work, right? This is God doing the work, Jew and Gentile. But God saves by making those who were once in rebellion against God, having no hope in the world, obedient to God and obedient to God's word. You remember after receiving the vision Peter, three times, Peter says, I'm not going to eat that, Lord. And the Holy Spirit says, get up and go with these, these men, these messengers from Cornelius. And he gets up and he goes. He's obedient because his heart had been changed and God had spoken. Cornelius, in this great moment where God is going to save the Gentiles here in his house, Cornelius reveals his military mind. Did you notice that? The latter part of verse 33. He says to Peter, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what? All that you have been commanded by the Lord. Right? This, is not, this is not a class or a worldview or a, a philosophical lecture. Cornelius says, God told me to get you. You have something to say to me. God commanded you to say something to me. Tell us what the Lord commanded you to say. Makes sense. He's a centurion, right? He gets that. He's eager to obey. All those in the house are eager to hear and obey. 
I would say that the first Gentile church started in the house of Cornelius started off pretty well. This is a model congregation, my beloved. I mean, this is it, right? What did they do? They gathered in the presence of God to hear the word of God from a messenger of God, so what? So they could obey God. That's the church. When we gather in the presence of God to hear the word of God from a sinful messenger like me, God's word, it should be our desire to do what? If I am proclaiming the gospel truth and I'm bringing you God's word, your desire should be to obey. And that's what we have here in this first gathering of Gentiles. The military orders, right? He gets it. He's a centurion. Your commander-in-chief speaks. Well, any order, if, you, if you're going to be smart, if you're in the military, you're going to obey it. The commander-in-chief is speaking. He wants to obey without question. So Cornelius and all those present, they were there ready to obey, waiting to hear what is the commandment. What are we to do now, God was already working on Cornelius and all those that had been drawn into the house, right? God had been drawing them already. So they are prepped. Their hearts are primed to hear the gospel that they too might be saved. Now, I do not believe it's by chance. Of course, there's nothing by chance, right? I do not believe it's by coincidence. There's nothing by coincidence because God is sovereign. That Cornelius was a Roman centurion and that is who God decided to kick off the Gentile mission. This man understood obedience. And I believe one of the things that we want to grasp here is that as the Gentile mission is set, the course is set for us, it begins with the concept of obedience in grace. That we too are called to obey. Cornelius and all those in the home wanted to hear and to receive and obey God's word. They didn't say if, they didn't say but, they didn't say maybe. Cornelius said to Peter, we want to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I would argue, my beloved, that that is real faith. True faith. They do not yet know what Peter is about to say. They don't know yet. But they understood that Peter was a messenger of God and they had put their trust in God and therefore they wanted to hear and obey because God is good. God is good. And therefore whatever God is going to ask them to do, call them to do, command them to do through his messenger Peter, they're going to do because it's for their own good too. In other words, faith and obedience, here's your point, they always go together. Faith and obedience always go together. We do not obey in order to believe. We believe and then we obey. We do not obey in order to believe. Faith comes and in our faith and in our trust in who God is, we want to hear and do what God has called us to do. And this, my friends, is the disposition of the true heart of a Christian. And I would say the disposition of the true heart of a church. First John chapter 5, listen. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and do what? And obey His commands. They're always together. For this is the love of God. Well, what is the love of God? What does it even mean to love God? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome for you. If you know them, you love Jesus, you say, oh Lord, tell me, equip me that I might walk in righteousness. So I'll ask you are, you, eager, are you eager this morning to hear and obey? Right, this is not a hypothetical question. You profess Christ, we're a church. Are you eager to hear and obey? Did you gather here this morning 
right? We're just like Cornelius' house. Did you gather here this morning in the presence of God to hear the word and do what the word has to say? By the power of the Holy Spirit, that you might walk today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life in righteousness. I'll ask you some more specific questions. Are you doing anything right now to remember what I'm saying? Are you doing anything right now to remember what I'm saying so that five minutes after the sermon, when you're having lunch, I said, what do you think of the sermon? He said, I have no idea. What was he talking about? Well, it's really hard to obey that which you do not hear and understand. There has to be some memory there in order to work with it. Are you taking notes? Are you listening intently, getting distractions put away, physical distractions, mental distractions? Will you do anything tonight or this week based upon what is proclaimed today? Maybe listen to the sermon again online. What a, what a great treasure we have that opportunity to do today. Maybe study the passage yourself. Maybe take the teachings from the passage and sit down and, and disciple someone else, else with this. If not, if you've gathered here with no intent on hearing, remembering, and obeying, then I think we can say you're just playing church, right? I mean, if we're just here because it's Sunday morning and we're supposed to be in church on Sunday morning, but it's not to hear and to receive and to obey, then what we're doing is not what is pleasing to God, right? This is not the sacrifice, as we saw with Saul, that is pleasing to the Lord. Obedience in love is pleasing to God. But in order to obey, you have to hear And you have to respond. There has to be something that happens. The work of God in saving sinners always includes the giving of a new heart. And a new heart always gives the believer the desire to obey God. Not just obey, but to be eager to obey, to want to obey. Jesus said, John 14, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who what? Who loves me. Right. So we don't separate obedience from love. Christ said very clearly, whoever has my commands, so you hear them, and then keeps them, which means you do them, is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Oh, that's what you want, isn't it? You want to be loved by the Father. You want to be loved by the Son and loved by the Spirit, knowing that one day you will see Christ face to face, that he will show himself to you. All right. Can I go to the next point? Point number one. First, we see that God's saving grace makes people eager to obey. His saving grace makes us eager to obey. I'm not saying it's, it's easy. It's not. You'll battle the flesh, but you ought to want to. You ought to want to. Point number two, sent to obey. So the Holy Spirit sends Peter off to uh, Cornelius' house. He enters this room. It's full of people. He's a bit surprised by it. And uh, they say, all right, you know, tell, us what the, tell us what God said. What did God command you to tell us? You know what they were asking for? They, they didn't even know they were asking for it, but they were. They're asking for the gospel. Like that's, Peter's a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're asking for a gospel they don't even know exists. But Peter's going to tell them, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him, God, and does what is right is acceptable to him. So before Peter even begins to share the gospel. He says, I'm having an aha moment. Right? Peter says, truly I understand now, now, that God shows no partiality. The, the vision of the sheep with the clean and unclean animals has come full circle. It makes perfect sense to him now. God shows no partiality, no favoritism when it comes to race or ethnicity or, or gender or education or social standing. You put whatever label you want on it, and God says, I do not show partiality to that. In fact, the, 
the word partiality that you have um, in verse 34, at the end of verse 34, that, that in the Greek, that's constructed from an Hebrew idiom. And it's really neat. Listen, it, it means to lift one's face. You say, what? How is that showing partiality? In the Near Eastern culture, when a king would call a subject in, and the subject would, would go uh, prostrate before the king, um, the king would, if showing favor, would take the subject's face and lift it up. So it was a sign of approval and acceptance and favor by the king to the subject. So Peter's saying, I finally get it, that God shows no partiality No lifting of the face because of race or creed or color, Gentile or Jew, male, female, slave, free man. He does not discriminate according to these lines. But now you gotta be very careful here that we don't slip off into universalism. The good news is that God does not discriminate on that which we cannot control. But it does not mean that God does not discriminate at all. He doesn't accept everyone, no matter what someone believes or how they live. Look at verse 34 again, the latter part. Peter makes this very clear. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but, verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So no longer Jew, Gentile, male, female, free, slave. No longer are those boundaries in place. Christ has destroyed that upon the cross. Any person from any nation young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, is accepted by God, brought into the family of God, contingent upon two things. Number one, they fear the Lord. And number two, they do what is right. They fear the Lord and they do what is right. They revere and worship God as God because he's God. And then they live their lives in a manner that's pleasing to him. In other words, who does God accept? He accepts those who have right worship and right living. Right worship and right living is what compels the king to reach down and lift up the face of a subject and saying, I am pleased with you. I find favor with you. Now the question for you would be this, and it was to Cornelius, no doubt, before he heard the gospel, is how is this possible for those of us born of Adam? How is it possible knowing that our hearts are totally depraved. The Bible says clearly that there's no one who seeks after God to worship God. The Bible says that. I believe that to be true. The Bible also said there's no one who does good. What? No, not one person. So no one seeks to worship God and no one does any good. And if that's true, then when we come before the king, he's not going to lift our face in favor. He's going to cast us out. He's going to judge us. Peter tells us how. Look at verse 36. As for the word, he's speaking of the gospel now, that he, God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He is Lord of all. Right, so they get, this, they get the dilemma here. They're supposed to worship God and, and live a life that's pleasing to God. They can't do that in their sin. How does that happen? Peter says it's, it's through the gospel. It's through this peacemaker, this shalom maker, between God and man, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior brought peace between rebellious Israel and the Lord. And then Dr. Luke makes it very clear here, that same peace that Jesus brought to the Jews is now being brought to the nations. And he makes that clear at the end of verse 36, says, he, Jesus, is what? Lord of all. Not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, Lord of all, all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues. In other words, the saving work 
of Jesus to save the Jews from their sin and rebellion against God is now being extended to all people. Now, we should know this. this you say, well, this, this is pretty simple for us. They should have known it too. Anybody who had heard the, the, uh, the teaching of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I mean, you, you, you know the story well. If you grew up as I did with Charlie Brown, even Linus does a fantastic job, grabs the blanket, takes the stage, and he tells about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he talks about the angels. Remember, the angels come before the shepherds who are watching their flock by night. You remember what they said? The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Lord of all. And then it said, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying this, listen with all your might, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Whose heads does he lift up? Those who worship him and live in accordance with that. Hmm? The promise goes all the way back to the incarnation. It would be through the accomplished work of Jesus' ministry on the cross that Jesus would bring Jew and Gentile all the way into the family of God, into a right relationship with God. Not discriminating by race or creed or color, but discriminating based upon worship. Right? That's a central tenet of our faith. Who do you worship? Worship the living God. Live in accordance with God's law as he has given you the ability and the spirit and he will receive you. Peter then walks through the gospel account and he assumes that they heard it already. At least they'd heard about it. They'd heard about the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus had done. But unlike Jesus's, uh, Peter's previous speeches on, or testimonies on the gospel, he doesn't draw upon the Old Testament, something very distinct. He's not going to. He's talking to, to Gentiles. But he does highlight two fantastic things. Number one, God's presence with Jesus, right worship. And number two, the works of Jesus' ministry, right living. At the very thing that God said he's going to accept Cornelius for, right worship and right living, this is part of the testimony. So first he says, Jesus' proximity to God the Father by telling the Gentile audience that what? Jesus had been anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, worship, and at his baptism that God was what? With him in all that he did, all of his ministry, his entire time. And then secondly, he tells of Jesus' earthly ministry, by punctuating our Lord's doing good, healing the oppressed, dying for our sins on the cross, being raised from the dead, and then ministering in bodily form for 40 days in resurrection form before his ascension. All the good works of our Lord. So Jesus worshiped correctly and he lived correctly. Verse 42, then he, Jesus, commanded us, the disciples, to... Preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, that he is, in fact, the Lord of all. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's seated upon his throne. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness, so he's now speaking to the teachings of the Old Testament, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, now listen with all your might, because this is what they had to hear, Everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes in him, Jesus Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the answer now is had. Right? The question in verse 35. How do we fear God? How do we do what is right? How are we accepted by God in the kingdom? How does he lift up our face? A sinner is able to worship God 
and live a righteous life doing what is right because Jesus Christ worshiped God perfectly and lived the perfect life in our place. He did that for us. And therefore, anyone from any nation who puts their faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as prophesied to by the prophets in the Old Testament is 100% completely forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Forgiven of the greatest sin, which is not worshiping God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Forgiven for not living in perfect obedience to God's word and will for our lives. In other words, by Jesus ascending that tree and receiving the curse that we rightly deserve, the Son of God paid the penalty for every single sin that you own. He paid the penalty. Our misplaced worship and our unrighteous living so that we, sinners, could, instead of being judged, instead of being condemned by God, we could be forgiven of our sins, set free from the power of sin, and equipped for the first time in the Spirit to worship God and live a holy life. You can't do that apart from Christ. If you try, you know, you fail. You can't. You can't. All you have is your sin nature apart from Jesus. In other words, through the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, sinful man is able to fear the Lord and do what is right. Through the work of Christ, by coming to a saving grace in Christ, we are able to worship and live as God calls us to worship and live because Jesus worshiped and lived perfectly for us in our place. And so God the Father sent the Son to live the sinless life that we were created to live and to die the sinner's death that we were, had to die as sinners needing to be judged and then By grace through faith, he gives it to us freely. Well, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? I mean, we've screwed our lives up bad. We have not worshiped God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day. And we've done lots of things in our lives that we know are dishonoring to him. So Christ lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And then he gives us that perfect life freely so that we can come all the way in. We can be completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. Receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ indwelt then by the Holy Spirit and declared and made a son or daughter in God's family. That's the work of Christ. That is, if you don't know that already, that is good news. That is super good news. Super good news for us. In other words, because of the perfect worship and perfect life of Christ, and this may shock you, Christian, but you are expected to worship God and live a holy life too. Because of what he did, and what he's given to you, you are expected. God expects you to live a holy life. He doesn't expect you to sin all the time. You say, but I do. Oh, I understand that. But that's not God's expectation for our lives. You know, in the last, last year, some people have been crushed by debt in light of the pandemic. Crushing debt has led to misery and criminal activity for more than a few men throughout human history, not just our time. But what if you found yourself in that situation? What if you found yourself grinding through each day as a result of the debt that you incurred and the poverty that you live, stealing in order to put food on your table, maybe even to feed your family? And what if after years of sorrow and and thievery, you received a substantial gift from an old friend? Out of the blue. A gift sizable enough to pay off all your debt 
get you and your family into a safe home, put food on the table, and enable you to quit your life of crime, get an honest job, and be a contributing citizen, a law-abiding citizen in your society. If you had a friend that did that for you, who brought you out of the extreme poverty and debt that compelled you to steal, wouldn't your days from then on forward be filled with joy? And wouldn't you strive out of the gift and the gift giver to actually be a good citizen of that community instead of one who steals others' property? My beloved, if you know Christ, Jesus is that friend, right? You had an insurmountable debt as a result of your sin. You did not worship God and therefore you lacked joy. You were bound by the flesh and so all you could do was sin. But Jesus, the, our great friend, ascended the cross so that he could give to you his joy and his righteousness to change everything. And so it's right for God to expect us to live holy lives. There is no gospel without obedience. There is no gospel without obedience. Jesus is perfect obedience in our place and our obedience our obedience exercised daily out of our deep gratitude and love for the eternal gift from our old friend Jesus. Amen? All right. Believers are eager to obey because Jesus Christ was sent to obey in order that we might lastly, I got one more point for you, be empowered to obey. Point number three. <laughs> All right, come on, encourage me here. <laughs> A little too quiet. You know, in the South, they say, amen, all the time. Amen, preach it, amen. That, you know, sometimes that's not right either, but feel free to encourage me. Number three, empowered to obey. I, I think that the problem, um, at least here in the West, where we have so much information, and most of us have multiple Bibles sitting on our bookshelves and access to commentaries online for free, I think that the major problem when it comes to obeying God is not a knowledge issue. I, I don't think that's it. I think that not knowing what to do or how to do it, I don't think that's the problem. I think for most of us, the, the problem is we don't want to, right? There's a desire in our heart that desires to do that which God does not want us to do, something greater. And our sin nature is so strong, and you know this if you've walked with the Lord any days, our sin nature is so strong that unless there's a greater power in us to overcome the sinful desire, we will sin. We will sin. We'll continue to worship idols instead of God, and we will continue to do what is wrong instead of doing what is right in God's eyes. Even, now listen, I love Cornelius, but even the devout, God-fearing Cornelius and all his centurion willpower would not have enabled him to worship God and live a holy life apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He too would have failed. And that's why, my beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always accompanied 100% of the time with the power of the Holy Spirit. Always. If someone comes to a saving grace, then we know the third person of the holy triune God, God himself has come upon that person to dwell in that person, to enable that person to what? Worship God and live a holy life. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, he's this is so great. Talk about a sermon getting cut short. This would be a good reason. He's in the middle of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's still sharing the gospel. And what happens? The Holy Spirit cuts him off. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It's an amazing scene. I would be happy at any moment 
to, for my tongue to be stopped, for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us in a mighty way. They heard the gospel. They began to understand that forgiveness for sins and acceptance by God came through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They were getting it. They were believing. And then the Holy Spirit breaks in, in power. Look at verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, listen to this, even on the Gentiles. God was accepting and receiving the Gentiles. Verse 46, for they were hearing them, the Jews that accompanied Peter, they were hearing them, the Gentiles, speaking in tongues and extolling God. So this supernatural outpouring, it's called by some the Gentile Pentecost. So you had Pentecost, at, on the day of Pentecost, in Jerusalem, you had the Samaritan Pentecost, you have the Gentile Pentecost, and it's very much like the disciples in the upper room, remember? They're in the upper room praying, and the Holy Spirit descended like tongues of fire, and they began to speak in tongues and extol God. Same thing's happening here. There's an audio-visual event that is affirming, it's affirming the Gentile mission, that God was, in fact, listen, not a respecter of man. God was not a respecter of man, but was going to take the saving grace of Jesus Christ to the nations. Now, apart from this external, supernatural, audiovisual experience, I think that the Jews who had accompanied Peter, and maybe even Peter himself, would have really struggled bringing those Gentiles into the church. I really do. I think that their mind, in the context of the promises made to Israel... And Jerusalem, that it would have been very difficult for them to bring them in. But what does God do? He establishes a defining moment in the history of the church. It's a watershed moment. I mean, you you can't go against God pouring out his spirit on people and then say, we're not going to receive them in. Gentiles were now on par with Jews in their relationship with the creator of the universe. They're on a level playing field. Gentiles by grace through faith, on par with Jews, no longer considered unclean in the eyes of God. No longer, only the blood descendants of Abraham. They were accepted by God, by grace through faith, and brought all the way into the family and had all the covenant promises that were given to Abraham and to Israel now belong to them too. It was theirs. All the promises, the promises of the presence of God being with us, the promise of the ability to worship God now, the promise of knowing that when you die and you leave this place, you're going to come before the Creator and not be judged but received in, the promise of reigning with Christ forever and ever, all belong to these Gentiles by grace through faith. And just as the voice of God in Peter's vision overruled all the dietary restrictions of the law, declaring all foods clean, the Holy Spirit of God overruled all barriers between Jews and Gentiles, all barriers between all people by things like race and creed and color or tongue, declaring that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, to be what? To be spiritually clean. Anyone who repents and believes and puts their trust in the Savior becomes cleansed by His blood and therefore is fit to be part of God's eternal family. My beloved, that's the problem. If, you can't, if you're not clean, you can't come in. If you're made clean, you come in, and you come all the way. And look at the latter part of verse 46. Then Peter declared, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people 
who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, so Peter had faithfully proclaimed the gospel, declaring moments before the Holy Spirit descended. Remember, he said, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, and they believed. They believed. How do I know that? Next week, we're going to see this. As Peter retells the story to the church in Jerusalem, he compares it to their experience in the upper room. Listen to what he says. This is from chapter 11, verse 17. God gave, Peter's now speaking to the church in Jerusalem. Peter said, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith was preceding the outpouring of the Spirit and baptism. In other words, Cornelius' house believed the gospel by Peter before the Holy Spirit was poured out. And that's a big tension in the church. How do we understand this? Even more so when in chapter 15, when Peter is standing before the Jerusalem council, he affirms their faith as well. Listen to this. This is from Acts 15. Peter talking, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them speaking of those saved in Cornelius' house by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Listen to this. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. By faith. In other words, all those Gentiles, all those Gentiles in Cornelius' house that day, they heard the gospel. Listen with all your might. They heard the gospel. They repented of their sins. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and they received the Holy Spirit. Every single one that was there that day hearing the gospel proclaimed. And so Peter rightly asked, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, these Gentiles. And the obvious answer is, well, no. I mean, how can we? We proclaim the gospel. They repented. They believed. The Holy Spirit was poured out in an audio-visual supernatural experience. How can we? All the qualifications were there. Confession, repentance, faith, and the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, listen to this, verse 48, he commands them. Again, I love it. He commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He commands them to be baptized without becoming Jews. They don't have to be, go through the proselyte process. He commands them to be baptized without being circumcised. He commands them to be, to be baptized without the dietary and ritualistic cleansings. God had plainly accepted by grace through faith these Gentiles. And listen, God had already added them to his church. So Peter and the Jews who accompanied him were in no position to say no to God. They were his children, blood-bought through Christ. So Peter commanded them to be baptized, and no doubt they wanted to be baptized. I mean, this is the initiation into the community of believers, right? This is the profession before God and man. I believe Christ is my Savior, and this is now my church. No doubt they were excited. Cornelius and all those who repented and believed and baptized on that momentous day in church history, they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, not just to speak in tongues, that was kind of cool, but to obey. They had been empowered to obey. And so when Peter commands them to be baptized, I guarantee there wasn't one person in that house fighting against that command. They were probably rushing to the pool saying, let me go first. No, I'll go last because the last in the kingdom is first. How does that work? They hadn't got that teaching yet. To worship God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength they had been equipped to in the Spirit. To live holy lives as God commands them they had been equipped to in the Spirit. 
my beloved, if this is our family history, and I believe that it is, then the same Holy Spirit that empowered Cornelius and all those present in his household to worship and live righteous lives in Christ is in you. Same Holy Spirit, same expectation, which means, and I hope this is not revelatory, you can, in Christ, worship and obey God too. You can. You don't have to continue in any sin right now. Whatever sin you brought into this building, into this holy gathering, that you're still fighting and you're still struggling, you don't have to. You've been set free, you've been forgiven, you've been empowered, and you can walk in righteousness. And if you believe that you cannot, then you have been lied to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure under. Every time you're tempted to sin, even before you sin, God is there saying, go this way. Listen to my voice. God says, obey me and walk in righteousness. With new hearts, my beloved, filled with a love for God and a love for your fellow man, you will have a greater desire to obey God. You'll have a greater desire to obey him than disobey him. Why? Because in our obedience to God, we express our love for God. In our obeying God, we express our love. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Show me a child that loves his parent. I'll show you a child that obeys his parent. Children who love their parents want to obey them. And not only that, in keeping the commands of God, we'll also love one another. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Obey God's commands and you're gonna serve and love one another. Not because you have to, but because you want to. The gospel and obedience go hand in hand. So let me encourage you to make it a point today to be a believer, eager to hear and obey God's word. Be like Peter, be like Cornelius, be like those in the house. Say, I want to hear the word. I want to know it. I want to understand it and I want to obey it. And if you struggle, ask God. Say, God, give me that ability in your spirit. He wants that too for you. He doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to disobey. He's a good father. Read God's word. Study God's word, pray through God's word, listen to the word being preached with great eagerness to do what it says. Not only to be blessed, my beloved, not only to be blessed, and you will be blessed, right? Happy are those who obey the commands of God. But for that day when Jesus comes, on that final day when you're brought into his presence, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read to you Matthew 7 and I'll close, verses 24 to 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's Christ. That's where you want to be on that day when he comes again in glory and he judges you. You don't want to be like this. Verse 26 in Matthew 7. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
You don't want to come before the Lord saying, I professed Christ, but I never obeyed because you are that last house. You don't want to hear God say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. You want to hear him say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Servants obey their masters. Blessed are those who obey the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a time and a place where we convolute the gospel in obedience. And we have foolishly separated them, thinking that if we are called to obey you, that we're engaging in religion and we've departed from the gospel of grace. I pray, Lord, that you would cast all such foolishness out of our minds. That we would truly believe, Lord, that being saved by grace through faith in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that it is our desire. We ought to want to obey. We want to hear you and we want to do what you call us to do. I pray for that type of obedience in this church. In every area of our life, Lord, how we are as husbands and wives, how we are as parents, how we are as children, how we are as covenant members of a local body. Cause us, Lord, to not only hear and understand, but do what you've called us to do, that we might be blessed, that we might be happy, and that we might bring you the most honor and glory with the short lives that we have. Father, we want to be people who build our lives upon the rock of Christ, hearing all of his words and doing them. We don't want to come before you on that day and have you cast us out because we've embraced some false gospel and some false grace. Lord, I know that in your spirit, we can do all these things. It is your will that we do. So cause, cause your people here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church to be a most obedient people in love, that the gospel would exercise that power in our lives as we are transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.